watch football on television, there's rules. And if you watch basketball, there's rules. If you play Monopoly, there's rules. If you drive down the freeway, there's rules. If you go to a third world country and drive, you're a fool. Because there are no rules. And it's sort of like whoever honks the hardest or the biggest car or whatever. Uh, and so it's much more enjoyable riding on the road with rules than riding on the road with no rules. Especially, we went over to Vietnam and we were in one of these little pedicabs. You know, the guy's pedaling a bicycle and you're in a little cart in the front of the thing. And you're out on this traffic in this third world country where there's cars and trucks and everything. And it's just pedaling, honk, horns honking. And you're in the middle of all that with this dude pedaling behind you. It's a little spooky, to say the least. I remember one time I got with this guy and there was a stop sign, which there was enough traffic that people were sort of following the stop sign or the stop light. I forget what. And this was, the pedicab didn't have any brakes. And so he would put his feet down and slide to a stop. Well, we got to a spot and we slid right out in the middle of the intersection. He says to me, you a heavy one. (laughs) He didn't compensate for the extra weight in the pedicab. So rules are good. Now God operates by rules. Creation, uh, if you take a science class, what you're studying in science are the rules that God created. Uh, Gravity, all the things that we... Uh, take for granted as we grow gardens and as we drive, there's physical laws, rules that God made and we function by. We discover them at an early age. I remember we had have had a wood stove in our house since we were married and Patty was saying, we need to put a little fence around our stove because the kids could walk up and burn themselves on it. And I said, they'll only do it once. <clears throat> and she wasn't thinking that was very fatherly of me to say, but uh, that's how we live life. We discover the rules, often because of a consequence of breaking the rule, and then we figure it out. Now, what we might call the visible world that we see with our eyes, we catch those rules fairly quickly. The invisible world is around us. That's made up of demons and angels, and they're everywhere around us. That have a big part in the life that we live, also operate by rules. And we, as we live life, sometimes break those rules. And then when we do that, we then give permission or allow access into our life by demons. Uh, And so angels and demons are running, operating around us, following rules that have been established by God. The Bible tells us what those are. So we can live our life with a degree of security and protection from God if we follow the rules. But if we break them... Um, somebody said to me, I, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in going to church. I said, why not? I don't like all those rules. So I said to him, I said, what do you think? Are those rules to make your life restricted and miserable and no fun? Is that why those rules are there? Or could it be that the rules are put there by God so that we can succeed and have joy and have security and be protected You really think God's into curbing and restricting and making life no fun? I don't think so. God's all about joy. And your presence, it says, is fullness of joy. And your right hand are pleasures forever. God knows that if you touch a hot stove, it's going to hurt. So let's make a principle, a guideline. And scripture says, don't touch hot stoves. (laughs) You can learn it the hard way or you can follow God's rules. 
And so this whole thing about angels and demons is all about the unseen world around us. They operate on the basis of principles or rules. So I'm going to give you a quick uh, review of last week. Number one, when we heard, understood, and believed the gospel, God delivered us from the power of the devil and his kingdom of darkness, put a fence around us, so the devil and his demons are kept far away from us. Now that's good news. Not only we get to go to heaven... Our sins are forgiven, but in this life, God intervened, put a fence around us to protect us from the devil and all that he would do to us. Before we became believers, the Bible says we belonged to Satan. We were his property. He controlled us. Um, John 1, 5, 18, he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. He was born of God, that is, born again, becomes a believer, trusting in Jesus as their personal Savior. Evil one does not touch him. Job 1, 8 through 10, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? A hedge, that's a fence. Satan was complaining. Well, sure, he's a good guy. You protect him. I can't get to him. Psalms 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, rescues them. And so God assigns angels to us, and they camp around us. They protect us. 1 Peter 1, 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Number two, the fence around our life has some gates in it that only we can open. We have a chicken fence. Keeps the chickens in. But it's got a gate in it. You open up the gate and you walk in and you collect the eggs and you feed the chickens. And if you walk out and don't close the gate, the chickens get out. And have you ever tried to catch chickens? Or herd chickens? Oh, it's a real pain. Now, if it were up to me, I'd just take my shotgun out and shoot them all. But... Patty doesn't want me to do that. So we have to herd them up and run them back in there. And so we've got to keep the gate closed so the chickens don't get out. Number three, only a stupid person would open any of those gates, but we all do it all the time. Why? Well, because we don't know the rules. If you knew opening a gate would allow Satan access and his demons access to your life and all that they would do to your life, why would you do such a thing? Well, nobody does it really on purpose. When Patty yelled at me for leaving the chicken gate open, I said, I didn't do it on purpose. Don't beat me, woman. Uh, I didn't do it on purpose. I just forgot. So we do that in our life. We leave the gate open. The demons get in, mess us up. Number four, Satan has strategies that he uses to get us to open those gates so we can have easy access to our lives. I have a demon that lives in my house. He's a little demon. He's about this big, and he's black, and he's got fuzzy hair. His name is Roscoe. And so if I walk outside, Roscoe will be right at my feet, and he'll follow me outside. Well, then I come back in, and I close the door, and he's outside, and he wants inside. So what's he do? He barks and whines and scratches, makes a total nuisance of himself until finally I open the door and let him in. 
And the next time I go out, he follows me out and he's out there scratching on the door. If I go into the kitchen and close the door to our bedroom and he's in the kitchen, he's in there whining and crying and scratching on the door. Open the door, open the door. So demons are outside your fence and they're trying to get you to open the door. They do it by tricking you. Yeah, they trick you. They have schemes that want to get you to open the door. They don't, you don't have to open it very far. And they can get in and have access to your life. Four, Satan has strategies that he uses to get us to open those gates. I gave you that one already, didn't I? Yeah. Second Corinthians 2.11. So that no advantage, no advantage, advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Advantage. Uh, he would have an advantage in our life in controlling us, getting us uh, to sin. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. So, I think sometimes Paul wrote things just to be sort of positive, And he knew they weren't true, really. We're not ignorant of his schemes. I think, yeah, right. Most every Christian I know is totally ignorant of his schemes. That's why their life is such a mess. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes the schemes of the devil, his trickery. Second Corinthians eleven three. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. His craftiness, his schemes. Number five. We open the gates in our demon fence by repeatedly committing certain sins. So, over the years, we've been married, going on fifty five years. We've established some rules. On how to have a great marriage. One of the rules is if I'm driving, I control the temperature in the car. That means you keep your hand off that dial. I'm driving. If you'd want to control the temperature, then you drive. Driver controls the temperature. That's one of our rules, but Patty breaks it all the time. But she does it, she, she waits until I'm looking out the window for a deer and elk, and she slips over real without me noticing it. She, and I'll notice, man, it's getting hot in here. Woman, did you change that dial? You, what did, huh? So there's a dial right on our forehead. And every time we do certain sins, it moves up a notch, moves up a notch, moves up a notch. Moves. You know what that is? That's our ability to hear those demons when they talk to us. And so they, that's how they tempt us. That's all they do. They don't get us in a headlock. Don't hit us with a stick. They just talk, 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 talk. We hear them in our thoughts. And after a while, those things just kind of wear you out. And you begin doing what you hear from these demons as they're all around talking to you. They're crafty. They know what to say, when to say it, uh, what circumstances and situations. But when it's, I got hearing aids in. And you know what I can do? I can, I don't have it on me right now, but I can take my phone out of my pocket and turn them off. I do that periodically, depending on who's talking to me. You know what else I can do? I can dial my, my phone into the football game. And I can sit there and listen to Mike preach and listen to the football game. Sometimes he thinks I'm laughing and, and cheering at his sermon. No, I'm not. Somebody just scored a point, you know? <laughs> so we have these thoughts all the time coming into our head from the demons. Well, the louder it is, the more often it is, the more apt we are to do it. And so, sin, 
Sin, sin, pretty soon, uh, man, those things just overwhelm your thinking pattern as you keep doing that. The first sin, and we talked about this last week, is anger. It's not so much anger as the failure to reconcile. And it's not the emotion of anger, feeling. I get angry all day long. Almost everybody that talks to me ticks me off. <laughs> and I don't tell them, you know, I smile. Ah, grip my teeth while I am, but... Ah. So be angry, don't sin. That means feel it, but don't say anything. Don't hurt, don't offend. Uh, and if you do, take care of it before the sun goes down. Because if you don't, uh, Ephesians 4.26, you give the devil an opportunity. You give the devil an opportunity. Opportunity means legal right, legal jurisdiction, a foothold. That is... They're moving in, moving in. Everything's louder. Uh, you give the devil a foothold, an opportunity by what you do. Why would you get angry at a person? Really? Well, we think that we're going to fix them. If I yell at Patty and get angry at her from turning the heat up, she won't do it anymore. <laughs> it hasn't worked so far. I don't think that me getting angry has fixed, changed improved anybody all it does is create this distance between us and all it does is wound people and hurt and offend and it allows satan access to my life it allows satan access to my life so why would i do that well because we don't think we don't realize what it's doing to us and what it does to others i went to a we went to a seminar patty and i did and the speaker was talking about getting angry in your marriage uh, specifically to husbands. He said, you ever go to the beach out there by Newport or those places and all the sea life there, and those, those little sea anemones, they're opened up, and if you take a stick and you reach down there and poke them, they'll close right up. He said, sometimes do that and time how long it takes them to open back up. And then poke them again, and they'll close up, and then time the next time. It's going to be twice as long. Then poke them again. Time the next time. Did you know that you can kill a sea anemone because pretty soon they won't open up? Because they don't want to get poked. He says, husbands, that's what you do to your wife's spirit. When you get angry at her, it closes up. And then it'll open up. And then you do it again, it closes up. Pretty soon you're married to a woman whose spirit is closed to you. That's not a good thing. It's not enjoyable. It's not a real marriage. And you might think it's, she's trying to do something to you, whatever. You did it by getting angry. So why would I get angry? Doesn't change anything. Doesn't fix anybody. She still turns the heat up when I'm not looking. And it just opens the door and allows demons access to my life. And uh, so it's probably one of the number one things any person that's serious about living the Christian life with any degree of success ought to get right in their own life. Make a goal. I'm not going to get angry at anybody. Not even a little bit irritated no matter what they do, no matter how many times they do it because it only damages relationships and it only makes me more vulnerable to the temptations of the evil one. Seven, the second biggie is bitterness. The failure to forgive anybody and everybody for anything and everything. That's probably the worst, biggest sin that Christians commit because we don't really think about it being 
that bad, but it is a biggie with God. It really is. Matthew 18, 34, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, torturers. That's your favorite word, isn't it? Torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Torturers, I go fishing in Alaska every year. And while I'm fishing, the mosquitoes are... You know, mosquitoes are demons. Yeah, you don't think you can see them, but demons, they're mosquitoes. And they torture you. They sting you. And then they itch. It drives me crazy. Mosquitoes, I hate mosquitoes. They're part of the curse. It's Eve's fault. Adam's fault. Somebody's fault. Those mosquitoes, oh, I hate those things. They torture you. Demons. God will turn you over to the torturers if you do not forgive anybody of anything. Now, why and why would anybody open up the door and let a whole bunch of mosquitoes in to make their life miserable? But we do it all the time. Number eight, another sin that we commit that opens up a gate in our fence is doing or saying things that cause disunity in our church family. I was speaking at a seminar down in Phoenix, Arizona, a number of years ago, and it was a pretty big attended uh, seminar. And I made a, I don't know what to call it, a real bad comment, but sort of a rude statement about a lady pastor up in Seattle. Now, I'm in Phoenix, no problem. And I went up and spoke at the church, and she was the pastor, and we had a few little... And so I, I just said this... It wasn't real bad, but it prob, I probably shouldn't have said it, but it was kind of on the rude side. And, and so in a break, a guy came up to me, and he says, that was my wife. Oh. What did I feel like? Now, would I have done that, said that, had I known that her husband was in the audience listening to me talk about the power of prayer and all that goes with it? No. So the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25, did I give you number nine? Uh, Number nine, God loves the church. God loves the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the eternal companion of Jesus. You damage his bride, you're in big trouble. There's a lot of people who create a lot of disunity in churches, and they don't have a clue. They just never, ever learn the rules. Now, one of the basic rules is you touch my bride... I'm going to touch you, and it isn't going to be pleasant. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, that he might present to himself, that's at the the marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of the age, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so that's what God's moving, working towards. When you make the church beautiful, you're one of his favorites. 
And when you damage her, then you're on his bad list. That's not a good place to be. Number 10, the devil hates Jesus, so he hates the church. Wants to destroy or at least severely damage the church, make the bride of Jesus ugly. So he is working on you, talking to you, to get you to do something, say something that creates disunity in your church. And when you do that, you are opening up a really big gate for demons to work in your life. Revelations 12, 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, great wrath, not just a little wrath, but great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So what do you think when you're looking over at Israel and you're looking at the politics and does it seem like things are maybe cranking close to the end times? Seems to me like it. So he only has a short time, and as that time gets near to the end, his wrath grows, increases. Uh, Revelations 12, 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. That's the nation of Israel. That's the nation of Israel. The dragon was enraged with the woman. Just read the news. You can see it all the time. And went off to make war with the rest of her children. That's me. With the rest of her children who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. His great wrath and he is enraged and he is making war, wanting to do everything in his power to damage the bride of Christ, to make her ugly. And he uses Christians to do that. And sometimes we talk about, well, the church Christianity is being oppressed and put down, and uh, it is. And that's because of the devil working. But he does way more damage through believers than he does through government. <clears throat> 11, a major part of the devil's strategy is to destroy the unity and love in our relationships with others. Here's a little trivia quiz. Um, Pastor Mike will give $100 to anybody who gets these right. Who wrote Cinderella? Walt Disney. Here's another one. How about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Oh, here's another one. How about Sleeping Beauty? Same author for all of them. How about Three Little Pigs? Some of you are not familiar with that one. How about Little Red Riding Hood? How about Jack and the Beanstalk? How about Rumpelstiltskin? How about Hansel and Gretel? How about Tom Thumb? Same author for all of them. They were brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm's. They wrote during the 1800s. First story was 1811, last one is 1850. 45 years they wrote fairy tales and stories. And so all those that I read to you, they wrote during those years. And my mother had a book of all Grimm's fairy tales in them. And she read it all the time we heard the stories. And then after I 
learned how to read. I started reading them over and over. And do you know my favorite story of all? There was 211 stories that Grimm's wrote uh, in their final copy in 1857. Uh, my favorite of all the stories wasn't Cinderella. It wasn't the three little pigs. Uh, it wasn't Little Red Riding Hood. It was the brave little tailor. Ever hear that story? Another title was Seven with One Blow. He killed seven flies with one swat and he put it on a thing that he wore around him. Seven with one blow. Everybody, whoa! And so he takes off for an adventure and he's going to marry the king's daughter and get half the kingdom if he kills these two giants. Big dudes. And so he goes out there, this little tailor, and he climbs up in a tree and he throws an acorn on one or he gets some rocks before he goes up in the tree. He throws a rock on one and throws a rock on the other and they're sleeping down there. And pretty soon he gets them so mad at each other, they kill each other. And so he goes and tells the king, okay, I took care of your giants. And there's a couple of other things he did in the story. That's my favorite of all Grimm's fairy tales. You learn something in class today that probably very few people know. Who the author of Sleeping Beauty was. Cinderella, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Rumpelstiltskin, all those. Same author, Grimm's, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm's, and the brave little tailor. So what does the devil do here? He hits you on the head with an acorn. And he hits your wife on the head with an acorn. He pokes and he prods and he, and he does it just at the right time so that you yell at your husband, you yell at your kids, you yell at your neighbor. He's all the time, all the time working to create disunity between people. And he's gotten very, very good at it. He knows how to do it. You ever think about the time that you yell at your wife that the devil is pushing your buttons, running your life because he planned it. Twelve, a major part of God's, God's nature built into the Trinity is unity and relationship. Did I give you uh, the other ones before that? Sometimes I jump ahead. Oh, oh, I did. Number 11. Did I give you 11? I gave you 11? Okay, the verses, 1 John three twelve. As Cain, who was of the evil one, of the evil one, slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So he was of the evil one. Uh, Revelations 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come down to the accuser of our brethren. That's the devil. The accuser of our brethren have been thrown down. You ever have somebody walk into a room and a thought pops into your head? They're ugly. Or whatever. I have that happen all the time. <laughs> not of you, though. No, not of you. You know my biggest problem, people with that? Other pastors. Yeah, they walk in the room and say, Huh, you can't preach with a darn. Can't preach your way out of a wet paper bag. Where did that come from? Just those critical, judgmental thoughts pop into my head when somebody walks. And the devil knows how to do that kind of thing. He just thumps us on the head with an acorn or a little rock all the time at just the right point. So we get irritated, cranky, upset at other people. He is master at stirring the pot and making disunity exist in a group of people. Number 12, a major part of God's nature built into the Trinity is unity and relationship. 
This is a big deal to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed in unity and community for all eternity. He created us in his image and in his likeness to be with him, to live with him as part of the family. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Jesus speaking that while he was here on earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number 13, God's will is that we live in unity and love with each other and with him. This is the great commandment. He is the author of love. The devil is the author of hate. God's will is that we live in unity and love in our marriages, in our families, our churches. And the devil is going to do everything he can to break marriages up, to create conflict between parents and children, to make disunity exist in a church. John 17, 22. The glory which you... This is Jesus praying uh, just before he's betrayed and crucified. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, speaking of his disciples, that they may be one... Just as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. So the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with, with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. I mean, that's about as inclusive as you can get. I'm one with you, you're one with me, we're one with them, they're one with us, and we're all going to live together, and unity is God's, I mean, he once loves unity, and when somebody creates disunity, uh, you're not going to get much for Christmas. Uh, God's not going to bless your life much. 14, the unity and love of the church is what validates the truth of the gospel. And disunity voids the message of love and hope. My dad <clears throat> had a gold claim down in southern Oregon. He got it when we lived down there, and then we moved up to Trout Lake. But he still went down and kept the claim. And he had to do so much work every year in order to keep it. So once I started pastoring, once a year when he went down there, he would stop and pick me up and I would go down with him and we, for about two weeks, would camp there and mine for gold. I just loved it. It was just dad and I. We had a great time. And so we had this dredge and we'd dredge up stuff off this little creek. It was called Ranchery Creek and run through the sluice box. And after we did that for about three or four hours, then we'd empty the sluice box into a five-gallon bucket, sit on a little stool in the creek and pan all that stuff in the five-gallon bucket and pick out little flecks of gold. And uh, I remember the first couple of times I did it, I would pick stuff out, and Dad said, "That's not gold." So, what do you mean? Sure it is. No, no, that's not gold. He'd say, "Squeeze it with your tweezers," and I would squeeze it, and it would break in half. He said, "If it were gold, it wouldn't break in half. Gold is soft, and you just squeeze it, but it would stay together." That's iron pyrite. You know what that's called? Nickname? Fool's gold. Yeah. It looks like gold, it's shiny like gold, and when you pan, you'll end up with it in your pan like gold, but it's not gold. It's a fake. So, 
is the church the message of the church true or not are those who sit here in the pews are they going to heaven are they God's children or not how do you know First John says, if you are one of God's, you love. And if you hate, you're not. You're a child of the devil. It's a pretty easy test. So when people on the outside look at a church and say, I wonder if I'll hear anything there that's true or not, they look at how we live our lives to validate that, to determine that, uh, whether they will find and hear truth or not by how we love one another. And if we don't, then... We're a poor advertisement, if not a bad advertisement. John thirteen thirty five. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. John seventeen twenty one. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, so that the world may believe. So that the world may believe. The world will believe not on the basis of... Uh, our evangelism programs as much as they will simply observing our life and looking and seeing how we love each other. That validates the message of the gospel as being true. So the devil knows that and he's going to mess that up every way and any way he can. He's just pitching those acorns, creating conflict and disunity. 15, one of JBC's mottos is God blesses unity, not methods. One of the things I'll tell pastors, they'll kind of be fussing about, okay, we want to grow like JBC's growing. What do we do? I said, did you know that you could have your whole congregation stand on their heads and sing happy birthday in your worship services and you would grow if you did it together? If you did it together, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you do it together. Now, I expected some of you would smile thinking about that. I can't stand on my head to save my life. Somebody's going to have to hold my feet up. And if I stand on my head, I'm certainly not going to be able to sing happy birthday because I can't breathe. (laughs) But anyway, that's just the illustration I use because it's absurd. But God will bless it and use it if we do it together. Unity is what matters. That's what God blesses. That's what works. That's what attracts people to him is unity, not methods. Everybody's looking for better methods. Oh, let's try this one. Let's try that one. You know, if we were only singing these kind of songs, if we would have longer services, shorter services, blah, 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 blah. God doesn't care about unity. The world doesn't care, I mean, excuse me, about methods. They care about unity and love abounding. So we just do it together. 16, another serious sin with God is immorality. Immorality. There's no right or wrong anymore in that area. Somebody asked me, I get asked questions periodically. They said, um, I'm going to marry this girl. So what's legal before we're married? I said, legal, you mean like driving car together? No, 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 you know what I mean. I said, hold hands. Well, Is that all? You're going to get married, right? Yeah. So what's the rush? Just in case, you know, maybe God's okay with, uh, but maybe he's not. Did you know what 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says? 
good for man not to touch a woman. And because you have problems with morality, go ahead and get married so you don't burn with lust. There are not many people like that message that I saved. Man, eh, just hold hands. That's a bit of a stretch, you know, if you want to talk about touching. Well, well you're going to get married, aren't you? Well, you had to wait till 16 before you could drive a car. You waited. Immorality is a big deal to God. And the devil gets a great deal of access into the average person's life today because of the fact that the world's going that direction, opposite of God. We're just following right along with them. And we use the world to determine what our standards for morality are instead of God. And so he wants a squeaky clean, not... Uh, 17, whatever is important to God, the devil will make a mockery of in the world that he controls. You can count on it. Look at the world if you want to see what's important to God. Not by what they're doing, but the opposite. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead. You were dead. You were. That's before he became a believer in Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to, according to the course of this world, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. Before you believe you, you walked by those standards, the standards of the world, the standards of the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, working all around us in every lost person's life. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, now, the mind were my nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. No, that's the way the world lives. The lust of the flesh. Um, and they're going that direction faster and faster and faster. And we've got to back up, not follow along and say, ah, we're not as bad as the world. <clears throat> 18, when we walk like the world in the area of immorality, God will allow the prince of the power of the air to work in us. You know why pornography is addicting? Because that is a huge tool of the devil. And once you get started there, there's a big old door that gets opened up. You got all these demons yapping at you all the time. And this temptation comes as a result of what you think repeatedly over and over and over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. This is Paul talking to the church. I'm hearing that you, there's immorality among you, such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. I mean, you're making the world look good. 1 Corinthians 5 is the same chapter. He said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, Lord, could I do that? I'd like to deliver some people over to the devil. <laughs> And I listened to, uh, uh, I forget who it was. I think it was, anyway, a really good preacher that I value his opinion, his study, his theology. He said, he was talking about that. He said, you know, I wished I could do that when I started pastoring. I thought, yeah, me too. Must be a condition of all good pastors. We want to turn people over to the devil. But he said, we don't need to be able to do that anymore because God does it. Because when Paul was writing, there was a lot of things just being introduced. But that's what God does. Turns people over to the devil. I don't like the 
thought of that personally. I think I'll just back up a little bit and stay clean so that God blesses me. 1 Corinthians six eighteen: flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. Every other sin you commit outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. What does that mean? I mean, it's sort of like eating lie. Why would you eat lie? Well, it, <clears throat> it makes my throat feel better. Really? <laughs> you know what else it does to you? Uh, I've discovered uh, here six months ago that I have a bunch of food allergies I didn't know about. And I have quit eating certain foods, and as a result of that, I, my Parkinson's has gone. I have no more muscle tremors. I have no more shakes. I have no more muscle cramps, and I am not taking any Parkinson's medicine. None. Zero. Um, The bad news, I can't eat ice cream anymore. Darn. So occasionally I see it there and I'm tempted. One time I took a couple spoons. I mean, I knew it like that. My muscles, I started looking like a bird trying to take off. It was terrible. So do I have any temptations anymore? No, I'm not going to destroy my own body for some pleasure that lasts a few minutes. Why would any sane person do such a thing? Paul says he who commits adultery, excuse me, commits a, a sin of immorality, sins against his own body. Every other sin you commit is outside the body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God. People ask me, how do I know the will of God? I can tell you a couple things that I know are God's will. Really, tell me. Okay, here, here's one. Your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Is it okay for me to do this? Is it okay for me to... Uh, come on. Your God is your master. He purchased you. He bought you. You're going to heaven. Follow the rules. 19, an obvious big gate is involvement in anything satanic. I think we know that. You get involved in stuff with the devil, worship, demon worship, devil worship, anything of that sort, and you're just swinging the gate wide open. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would fool around with that kind of thing, but they do. Deuteronomy 18.9, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those, of those nations. I mean, don't do what the world does. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who inter- interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spirit or so one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable, detestable to the Lord. How's that sound? Detestable to God. I don't necessarily want to be in that camp. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. 20, probably every sin that gives the devil and his demons greater, probably every sin we do gives the devil and his demons access to some degree, some worse than others. 
we've measured in, uh, focused in on the biggies, but probably any of them, all of them, there's a bit of a dial action takes place in our life when we do them. First Samuel 5.23, rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion, that is where you don't do what God says, is a sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. This was a statement made to Saul. Number 21, unless we have never sinned, we need to know how to shut the gates and keep them shut. Which will be the lessons for the next number of weeks. If you open them up, and we all have, let's close them. And get rid of those demons that are inside the fence. And the Bible tells us how, very clearly. Number 22, just for, uh, you know this, the big closer is prayer. So we're going to talk about the details of that in weeks coming up. But just a little plug. Five days of prayer coming up December 4th through the 9th. If you pray and nothing happens because you pray, one thing will happen for sure is if there are any demons that got inside your fence, they will be gone. They will leave. I call it the supernatural sheep dip. Yeah, if you got sheep, ticks get on them. Get too many ticks on them, then pretty soon they just lay over and die. Sucked all the blood out of them. Well, you run them through this water with sheep dip, and it kills all the ticks. They come out. Ah. So you want to get sheep dipped? Get all those little Klingons off of you? Come to the five days of prayer. They can't stand that prayer room. When you, before you walk in, you will hear these thoughts. Don't go. Don't go. Doesn't make any difference. You're afraid to pray. Don't let those critters control your life. Come in. Sit down. Listen. If you don't want to pray out loud, fine. Just pray along silently. But it will help tremendously and get rid of those Klingons. Uh, so plan on it. The more you're in there, the better... Uh, I mean, if you want to get really clean, stay in the shower for a while. Uh, if you just run in and out, it'll get some, but you want to get a bunch. So go in there, stay for a bit, and get rid of those Klingons. You'll be amazed at how your thoughts improve dramatically. And the peace and the joy will be, start filling you up once you get rid of those things. They want to make your life miserable, steal all the joy, all the peace out of your life. And so... Get them gone. Prayer is the key. Five days of prayer is powerful. And uh, take advantage of it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love, thank you. Thank you for the power we have of your spirit living in us. Thank you for your angels that guard and protect us. But Lord, we confess to you that we often do things that allow them access greater and greater and greater until, Lord, we just are out of control, as it were. And we're agitated and we don't have peace and we don't have joy and Everybody seems to tick us off. And Lord, I just pray that we'll take advantage of all the, we'll just learn the rules and how to be successful in life as we follow you. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.